Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and Director of Content Marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the NCAST Regulatory Brief. I am Stephanie Lyon, Vice President of Compliance, and joining me today to deliver important information that happened during the month of January, we have Robert Brosh and Shelby Montgomery, Regulatory Compliance Councils, with our subject matter expert group. Today, we're going to start with things that affect the entire industry and then zoom in into topics affecting depository institutions like banks and credit unions and end with our mortgage companies. First topic of the day is something we've already started the conversation on last month, and that is the vaccination requirements and mandates that seem to be floating around. So we're going to go into with Robert to talk about what the Supreme Court is doing and what you can expect or anticipate at your financial institution. Robert, take it away. Thanks, Steph. Yeah, so on January 13th, the Supreme Court stayed OSHA's COVID-19 vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard. Just as a reminder that ETS required employers with 100 or more employees to either require their employees to be vaccinated or to mandate masks and require weekly COVID testing. The Supreme Court invalidated the ETS because it said that Congress gave OSHA the power to regulate occupational safety hazards, not public health hazards. And the majority opined that it's really the state's duty to regulate COVID-related risks, as 27 already have implemented some sort of legislation relating to COVID vaccination or mask mandates. And so in response to the Supreme Court's ruling, OSHA ended up repealing its ETS on January 26, but it did affirm its commitment to issuing a more permanent standard. However, I would expect it to be much more narrowed to specific industries, not as broad and far-reaching as the ETS was. And just as a reminder, that has to be done by May 5th of this year. Thank you, Robert. You can always anticipate a lot of litigation around things that require people to do anything. So we don't expect anything less than this at this point. We're going to move on with issues affecting our depository institutions. There might be a little bit of non-bank related effects here. So keep tuning in, even if you are not a depository institution right now, because we're going to talk about central bank digital currency. What is that? Well, the Federal Reserve put out a study or a paper regarding what it would look like if they were to issue digital currency. As a reminder, the Federal Reserve is the U.S. Central Bank. So they're basically saying, what if we got into cryptocurrency? The big difference between cryptocurrency and digital currency issued by the central bank would be, of course, it is now backed by the U.S. government. It doesn't get much better than that when it comes to liquidity and credit risk, because crypto, like Bitcoin, is really backed by not much. Maybe unicorns out there. We don't know. So it's very, very difficult to know what the value of Bitcoin is from day to day. And just as a phenomenal example of this, when the Federal Reserve put out this paper on central bank digital currency, Bitcoin dropped almost $10,000 in value over just a couple of days. And that is what we're trying to avoid here. We're trying to make sure that consumers, if they want to go into digital currency, feel like it's a safe method of transacting and purchasing goods and services and even real estate. 
We have already started to see a lot of real estate transactions, especially in Florida, that do have some kind of cryptocurrency and digital currency components to them. So this paper was not announcing that the Federal Reserve is actually, in fact, going to do this. It was just putting out a feeler out there. They expect, and before they do anything they want, Congress and the president, as well as the rest of the executive branch, to have very clear support for this action and activity. And they want to see that support in the form of lawmaking. They want to see laws. They want to see regulations. They want to see clear standards because there's a lot of changes that would need to happen for any kind of digital currency to be issued. They also talked about the major effects this would have on depository institutions like banks and credit unions, because it could have the effect of having consumers take away their deposits from these institutions to instead purchase or obtain kind of digital currencies. So this could mean that banks and credit unions that rely on major deposits to issue out loans, they might not have access to these types of capital reserves and cash reserves. So the central bank decided that there's a lot of things that we could do here to prevent that kind of risk. One of those would be utilizing intermediaries to provide the digital currency, as opposed to incentivizing individuals to hold an account with the central bank, which currently is not allowed anyways. People cannot have accounts with the central bank. That's why they have bank accounts so that they can continue to transact with these accounts. There's going to be a lot more to come on this. This is just the beginning of the conversation. And another thing that the paper noted was, of course, the Government Accountability Office just said and issued out another study or paper about the nexus between virtual currencies and terrorist financing, as well as the ability to utilize these kind of digital currencies for nefarious activities. So the more we see that nexus and those problems, the more we know we need to ensure that anything that we put out in digital form has the same level of safeguards and BSA AML regime requirements to prevent it from being utilized and leveraged by criminals. And until we can do that, the central bank feels like this is still something that is too in its infancy to be explored too much more without understanding what kind of additional regulations and laws we need to put around it. Um, but I know that the federal banks and the federal reserves are not the only ones talking about it. We have seen conversations on the state as well, right, Shelby? Absolutely. And, and we're going to start with our favorite state, New York. Um, as he promised last November, the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, he received his first paycheck this month in cryptocurrency. Now, he actually has committed to taking his first three paychecks in Bitcoin when he made this promise. Bitcoin's prices were at an all-time high, but as Stephanie just said, they took a plunge, and of course, they took a plunge at the time that he's getting his paycheck, so the mayor gave himself a bit of a pay cut right off the bat, but um, he did continue to emphasize his intention to make his city uh, the center of cryptocurrency and financial innovation, so we'll see how that works out for him. If the crypto market continues this downward turn, his first three paychecks aren't, aren't going to amount to much for the new mayor. And then we've also had a number of state regulators who have gotten involved in the crypto market this month by issuing warnings to their investors. Among them, you've got Kentucky, Virginia, Wisconsin, Arkansas, Oregon, Florida, Arizona. There's just a ton of them who are warning consumers about the risk related to cryptocurrency. They've seen a rise in consumer complaints 
with digital assets, with, with blockchain, with the cryptocurrency products. And so they're making this consumer protection. These warnings are real focus right now. So I think we'll, we'll see states continuing to put out resources, put out information for their consumers, and really try to, to keep a handle on the, on the cryptocurrency market. That is a lot of information on crypto. Thank you, Shelby. And we're going to move on. A lot of us just returned from couple, hopefully a couple of days off from winter holiday activities. And I think it's a really good time to talk about the federal laws and regulations around controls for vacation policies, as well as some changes that some states are thinking about. So Robert, what are some of the requirements when it comes to time off to keep it as a control or aka vacation time off? Yeah, so each federal bank regulator issued guidance back in the 90s, early 2000s, back when I was still storing my money in a piggy bank, encouraging banks to implement a policy requiring employees in sensitive positions to take at least two weeks of vacation a year as an internal control to cut down on fraud and embezzlement. But I think, you know, there's no movement on the federal side. However, that does still seem like an outdated piece of guidance, especially with the new, you know, working at home policies that are in place by a lot of financial institutions. But I do think states are starting to look at it. And I think there's no one better than Shelby, our state expert, to talk about what she's seen on that front. We're back in New York again. Surprise there. If Robert was storing his money in piggy banks in 1996, New York issued this guidance on vacation policies. I was graduating from high school, so it has been a while ago, but New York's guidance on vacation policies for banks and credit unions, again, covers these employees in sensitive positions. Those people are considered officers and employees involved or engaged in transactional business or having the ability to change the official records of the institution and any staffer who might be able to do this. These people were asked in that guidance, again, from 1996, to take at least two consecutive weeks of vacation or other leave on an annual basis. Now, I don't know about for you, but I would imagine for a smaller institution, probably not the most feasible uh, policy to follow. So, the New York Department of Financial Services is requesting information on, on changing this policy, updating it, um, making it fit more in the 2000s, you know, come on into to reality here, not back to the future. So they're asking for comments. You've got till February 4th originally, but they have extended that date to March the 7th. So you've now got till March the 7th to get your comments in. Make sure your opinion's heard. We'll keep you updated on, in, on the outcome. Thank you, Shelby. And I wouldn't mind two-week requirement to take vacation leave, but you're right. It doesn't sound very feasible at all. We're going to move on to issues affecting our banks, and we're going to start with a little bit of a shift in the competitive landscape for these institutions. We know when we've been warning you as in contracts that fintechs can either be great partners or they can become great competitors. And in this case, we know that SoFi, a, an amazing and large fintech company that is digital first and is issuing tons of loans to consumers and commercial account depositors, they are now requesting to become a national bank and they have been conditionally approved by the OCC. The way that this approval is going to work is uh, they are actually going to merge with Golden Pacific, another institution. And they're going to become a $5.6 billion national bank that is going to be fully capable of doing everything else any other national bank can do. 
The caveat here is they did sign or they're going to sign an operating agreement with the OCC that prevents them from entering into any kind of cryptocurrency space or services. I just thought that was a little bit of an interesting point, but that's only contingent upon the continuation and finalization of that operating agreement. After that's done, we now have a fully fledged a national bank that is really fully digital. So from a competitive perspective, if you're a 5.x number of billion dollar asset size institution or you're a community size institution, you probably have a lot of legacy systems out there, core providers, and just any other technology that doesn't fully conform with the way consumers are trying to do and engage with transactions today, especially after the pandemic when a lot of consumers are really excited to adopt all types of digital solutions for their banking. So it's time to go back to your strategic plan and ensure you have a good and legitimate way to compete with these larger fintechs that are digital first and that you're catching up with your technology, your security, and your ability to please your customers and serve them in a way and meet them in a place where they wanna be met. So that is what we have on the competitive front. I know the FDIC is always up to something. So Robert, what is the FDIC doing? So FDIC issued a rule changing up how financial institutions, how insured depository institutions have to calculate their deposit insurance coverage. Uh, So they're actually combining coverage for both revocable and irrevocable trusts into a single trust category. Like I said, to simplify that calculation for coverage. So this means that trust deposits will be insured up to $250,000 for each trust beneficiary, not to exceed five beneficiaries, providing maximum coverage of $1,250,000 per owner per insured depository institution. Right. So this means in certain circumstances, if your institution has depositors who have relied on this distinction between irrevocable and revocable trusts, they may have deficient insurance on their trust deposits. Um, the rule isn't effective until April 1st, 2024, but this gives you time to you know, go ahead and take the time to notify those depositors. Um, it's a good time to inform them that if something would happen, that they wouldn't have coverage of all of their funding that is stored in your institution. But along with this rule, it also provided for coverage of advances by mortgage servicers on behalf of a borrower's principal and interest payments into a mortgage servicing account. And so these funds are now insured up to $250,000 per borrower, consistent with the coverage for payments of principal and interest collected directly from the borrower themselves. Seems like something that has a a good effect on people and that we're going to have to keep tracking and seeing how it gets implemented fully. So we're going to move on to issues affecting credit unions. And Robert, you're not off the hook. Uh, I know NCOA issued their supervisory priorities for 2022, finally, but I saw it was a tremendous laundry list of priorities, which always leaves me thinking if everything matters, does anything truly matter or stand out? But I guess we're going to talk about that laundry list. So Robert, what's going on with the supervisory priorities? Yeah, like you said, Steph, NCUA's list is very long. So it's certainly a perfect time to make sure that you are paying attention to each aspect of your operations. So NCUA started with credit risk management. They are going to be looking to ensure credit unions conducted safe and sound lending practices, especially concerning adjustments made to help borrowers who were facing COVID-19 hardships. 
Just as a reminder, I think I said this a lot during 2021, regulators are going to offer a bit of flexibility in terms of modifications that you did make, as long as it was in the best interests of those borrowers. However, you know, you still need to have the documentation and reasoning behind those changes to make sure that it was in a safe and sound manner. NCUA is also going to talk about or focus on information security. They want to focus on the controls that your institution has in place to protect consumer financial information, specifically as it relates to ransomware, vendor management, and business email compromise. And just as a reminder, NCUA released the ASET tool to help credit unions assess their cybersecurity preparedness. So if your institution hasn't utilized that yet, now is the time to take a look. We also have a focus on payment systems. This one, the NCUA left a little more to the imagination, citing the threats associated with increased reliance on technology and new technology that uh, credit unions are utilizing to offer faster retail payments. We also have a, a big one here, capital adequacy and risk-based capital implementation. As most of you probably know, uh, January 1st of this year, NCUA's risk-based capital rule and their complex credit union leverage ratio uh, rules went into effect for those complex credit unions, those with over 500 million in assets. Uh, and so they are going to be paying close attention to the accuracy of these new reporting elements in that risk-based capital schedule of your institution's call report. We also have loan loss reserving. Um, so credit unions have to implement CECL, the current expected credit loss methodology, which just as a reminder here, looks both at uh, historical losses as well as foreshadowing and taking into account probable or potential losses in the future. Uh, so NCUA is going to be assessing preparedness for your internal controls and adherence to all of your AL reserving methodology. Uh, we also have loan participations, which is kind of a new one here. Um, NCUA is examining credit unions to make sure, um, just as you know, another reminder, you have separate and distinct records for each loan participation uh, that your institution has, and that you are practicing prudent third-party diligence, due diligence uh, when purchasing those loan participations. We also have fraud, once again, a little more of a broad category, just and NCUA wants to make sure that credit unions have reasonable procedures in place to avoid employee fraud resulting from that new work from home environment. We have the LIBOR transition, you know, the use of LIBOR is finally has finally come to an end. Uh, NCUA is going to be focusing on credit unions that had significant LIBOR exposure or inadequate fallback language within existing contracts. Uh, and, and just as a helpful tool as well, NCUA did issue a letter to credit unions outlining the supervision framework that examiners will use to evaluate risk management as it relates to transitioning away from LIBOR. Last financial type one here, we have interest rate risk, uh, you know, COVID-19 huge on financial institutions across the board, but we definitely did see an increase in share growth as a result of the pandemic. So NCOA wants to make sure that your institution has been reasonable and hasn't taken any undue risks in terms of uh, long-term investing with those increased shares uh, as, a as a result from you know, potential market risk. And then I think there are a few other things apart from the list that I went through. Uh, and I think Stephanie is more of an expert on those areas. So I'll let her take over. Thank you, Robert. I just wanted to make sure you had a time to, you know, breathe and, and 
recuperate from doing that laundry list. We're going to move on to some of the other priorities here, and it is BSA, AML compliance. We're talking about anti-money laundering programs to the surprise of nobody, because it's not just an NCUA priority, it's a national priority for the current administration. And it's probably going to continue to be a national priority because criminals will never stop being savvy and coming up with really clever ways of exploiting our financial systems and, and areas. And that's why we have to be very vigilant. And that's why our examiners have to consistently ensure you're keeping up with the newest laws and regulations. And for the first time in almost a decade, we did have new laws that are going to be affecting the Bank Secrecy Act. And we're gonna start seeing those implementing regulations throughout this year. So what NCUA wants to see from your credit union is do you have appropriate change management to understand the new requirements and the changing requirements that you're going to have? And are you going to change your policies, procedures, and processes to accommodate and implement those changes. So that's first and foremost when it comes to BSA compliance, but never forget about technical compliance because this is an area where you can get tiny violations. They can become multi-million dollar penalties and we see it all the time. Also, when NCOA comes to examine you this year, like they do every single year, they're going to take a look at your consumer compliance program and the capabilities of meeting requirements in that space. That's always something that they look at. And the specific areas that they're going to focus on this time pertain to COVID-19 pandemic. How did you serve your members during the pandemic? Did you have a lot of forbearances? How did you report those? Were that, was that appropriately reported to credit reporting agencies? When they resumed, are you doing it per regulation X? Are you meeting those requirements for mortgage servicing and so forth? So that's the first area they're going to look at is how did you respond and are you operating back to normality or what you consider to be normal at this point? The other area that they decided to focus on was a little bit more off you know, the beaten path, and that is the SCRA, the Service Members Civil Relief Act. And the thing about the SCRA is you can't tune me out if you don't have field of membership that includes military members. It doesn't matter. Military members and their dependents and spouses are all over the United States. Sometimes they are in reserve, meaning they haven't been called into duty. So you might not even know that you're serving military members at your institutions, but it is your responsibility to identify them, especially if you have specific types of loan accounts with them because there are protections specifically offered to them. And if they try to take advantage of those protections and you're putting hurdles in front of them, that's when you can get in trouble. Or if you're repossessing their vehicles or homes when they're away in service, that's another major area where you can get in trouble. So keep that in mind, even if your field of membership is not large on service members, it doesn't mean you don't have quite a handful in your institution. The other one they called attention to was fair lending, like everyone else in the U.S. At, the, at this moment. But the specific area that I think is important to mention for fair lending today is not only do you have the right policies and procedures to minimize any type of improper discrimination at your institution, but are the third parties you're utilizing or employing to get and obtain appraisals are they exposing you to some kind of bias issue? We've seen it in the news. We've seen stories and heard stories that are pretty horrifying about 
black consumers that, you know, they had pictures all over their home and all of a sudden they got a really low appraisal and then they engaged in something they referred to removing all of those pictures and anything else that would showcase their race or who they are as people. And all of a sudden the following appraisal was significantly higher. If you see any evidence of discriminations in your appraisals that you're asking for, it's time to review the vendors, it's time to review the appraisers themselves and potentially ask and request for new appraisals. You don't want to be associated with borrowers calling you out as being the institution that is allowing for that type of discrimination to go through. And finally, overdraft protection. That's another big one that the NCOA, the CFPB, litigation, the news, everyone's focusing on because there's a lot of technical violations when it comes to opting people into the program in the first place. But there also seems to be a couple of issues with unfair, deceptive, abusive acts and practices when it comes to ordering transactions to maximize your uh, fees that you're able to charge or how, how good is the practice of charging fees for, let's say, someone overdraws their account for $5 for a coffee and all of a sudden they get hit with a $28 overdraft fee? Is that something that you know, the, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau feels is fair? Right. So now we're starting to have to answer those questions. And that's why NCUA is giving you a warning that they're going to be looking at those programs now. And they've already told you and teased that they're going to be looking at that in 2023 as well. So it's not just a one-year priority for overdraft protections, it's a two-year priority, which is kind of new for the NCUA as well. All right, NCUA, aside from all of the laundry list of priorities, also issued examination updates. If you have an exam coming up, you are now hopefully going to be using a little bit more technology. NCUA has officially retired their ARIES questionnaire that was that 25-year-old spreadsheet that was supposed to be a helpful way of doing exams for credit unions, and they're finally replacing it with Merit. Merit is something you have to register for through your NCUA Connect account. So if you have, like I said, an exam coming up, make sure your NCUA Connect administrator has you set up so you can upload your exam documentations and any other document requests through there. You can communicate with examiners and answer their questions. And at the end, you can even download your examination report. So it's a one-stop shop, hopefully, for what it is to gather all of the documentations for your exam. The other exam update is the camels, right? We used to have one camel. Now we have the plural form of the camels. And we have that sensitivity to market added towards the end of how credit unions are rated. And you have to remember the S itself is new to NCOA, but it's not new to any other of the federal banking regulators. So the OCC, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, they all have tremendous amount of guidance out there on what the S stands for, what they're going to be looking at. So if NCOA hasn't given you everything you need yet and you want a little bit more before this becomes final in April 1st, so in Q2, Go ahead and look at the OCC examination manuals on, on, on C-A-M-E-L-S. I think they're extremely helpful. And again, you have to always observe what NCOA is saying and doing. But NCOA is now catching up to what everyone has already said and done. So it's a good way for you to keep up quickly. And the last thing that the NCOA wanted to remind us on, on examinations is if you want to be recording your exit or joint conferences with your examiners, 
you are allowed to request that from your examiner itself. For the most part, they're supposed to say yes, but NCUA wanted to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, anytime you record someone, there are state laws that come into play. So please, please, please make sure you have consent and that everyone that is part of the call and the meeting is, is aware of that recording. And the second thing is, it's really helpful to know what everyone said and did during an examination uh, request interview or joint meeting. But a reminder that you're not the only ones that can leverage that video. Your examiners can also request a transcript or a copy of that recording. So it is a two-way street. It is going to help you make sure that what was said and done is in fact what was written in that report. But the examiners can also leverage it if they need to. So that is what NCUA put out for their supervisory priorities and examination reminders. And they just got out of their, I think it's monthly board meeting, right, Robert? And they issued a couple of interesting proposals. So can you cover those real quick? Yeah, the big one to come out was that the NCUA uh, approved a proposed rule um, requiring federal credit unions, not federally insured credit unions, just as a, a distinction there, uh, to have plans, policies, procedures in place to fill key positions, uh, such as officers of the board, management officials, uh, executive committee members, supervisory committee members, um, and if your bylaws have it, also members of the credit committee, um, just to make sure that you are providing continuity of operations, right? I don't think it's any secret that the board is essential to a credit union success. Um, and so NCUA really wants to make sure that, I think especially for smaller credit unions, that there is some sort of a backup plan in case there is a sudden departure of one of those members. Um, that way, uh, you know, you can make sure that you have your strategic plan in mind. That way you are ensuring that you are bringing on the right individuals and have contingency plans in place. That way you can ensure that you're keep, you keep offering the best products and services that you possibly can to your consumers. Absolutely. Succession planning has been linked to so many smaller institutions merging out. So I think it's a good time to start reviewing it, whether it's a necessary rule or not left to be seen. All right, let's move on to our mortgage companies where we have all the tea on a recent enforcement, right? Shelby, what's going on with mortgage companies? Yeah, I would dare to say that the big news for mortgage companies this month is this settlement. And it's a settlement between state regulators and hundreds of mortgage loan originators over SAFE Act education requirements. So the Conference of State, uh, state Bank Supervisors, CSBS, um, discovered some irregular activity when they were monitoring online coursework uh, that was approved through the NMLS. Now, this discovery ultimately led to an investigation revealed that more than 400 MLOs nationwide had paid Danny Yen, who owns course provider real estate educational services, to provide them with false education certificates, as well as to take courses for these MLOs, um, which they were not in attendance for. It went on for about four years. The settlement involves MLOs in 42 states. That's so probably easier to name those states that, that weren't affected than that were. Um, but through the settlement, each MLO agreed to surrender his or her license for a period of three months, pay a fine of $1,000 for each state in which he or she is licensed, 
and then take continuing education beyond uh, the federal and state safe at requirements that are currently existing. So the CSBS has also provided a background document with some more information on its website. It answers a lot of questions if you have more that you want to know about, but important to note um, information on specific MLOs is available through the NMLS. If they've consented to this settlement, you'll know it from that website. And then the companies who employ these MLOs have not currently been implicated. The lesson to be learned here, don't try to cheat the system because it's going to cost you. Thank you, Shelby. Yeah, that is a big, big settlement, I think, affecting a lot of individuals. So good luck to them, I guess. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another NCAST episode. I hope you found it helpful. If you want any information on the topics we covered today, check out your NCOMPLY. It is full of resources like guidance documents, our regulatory changes on state and federal levels, and news, and so much more. On behalf of Shelby, Robert, and myself, we hope you have a phenomenal rest of your week, and we will see you next month. That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.